Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 51. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Shimon. And I'm Dr. Patel. And so for today, actually, I'm excited to introduce the topic today. So this is Pharmacist to the Rescue. What do you mean, Pharmacist to the Rescue? All right, so again, what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be looking at the use of the naloxone kits or the naloxone uh, injector devices. So what are we rescuing patients from? It's a great question. So what we're looking at is potentially a way of stemming some of the recent opioid epidemic that's been going on. We, we know that within the last few years, there's, there's a rise in, in some of the either accidental or intentional do, uh, overdoses of it, both from use of heroin as well as looking at prescription opioids. It's been something that's been coming out in a number of states, especially hit hard on the East Coast, cities like Boston, Philadelphia, and, and even Chicago, and even the surrounding Lake County as well. There have been a number of the, these overdoses, and so out of that, it's become a public health crisis, essentially, and the use of these naloxone kits or use of naloxone as a, as a way of reversing some of those effects of opioids and essentially preventing some of these deaths. So, Dr. Sherman, we use naloxone on the inpatient side. I'm pretty familiar with it. I know it's been around a long time. It sounds like there's a kit available. Is that what's new in terms of what's hot with naloxone, or is there something on top of that that's new and exciting? Right. So, actually, a kit's probably no longer the term I should be using. Really, it's device, because what we have now is we come out with with two of these proprietary new technologies. So, previously, they were kits. When somebody would be sent home, and, for example, if they had a history of opioid use or was considered to be at risk for an overdose, you'd be given a kit. And usually these kits came in a little rubberized bag with a zipper on it and inside would be little vials of naloxone and either a syringe and a needle or they would have a a little nasal atomizer device. And so you'd be able to use those and the individual would put them together. We're going to talk a little bit more about the different products themselves, but it seems like there are different ways that you can administer naloxone. Right. So those, those earlier ones were a little bit tricky to use. So what they found is these, these devices were somewhat difficult to use. And so individuals who were in the heat of a moment and witnessing somebody having an overdose would have difficulty putting them together. There was also some concern about accidental needle st- uh, sticks with the needles, things like that. So it came out that we're looking at, at new devices that would all be put together already. So the first one that came out was the naloxone kit or the Evzio auto injector, and then the second one that recently came out was a, a naloxone spray that's in a, a pre-measured device. So Dr. Schumann, I accept the fact that we have new cool ways to give naloxone to these high-risk patients, but the title of the podcast was Pharmacist to the Rescue. So how is a pharmacist playing a role given that we have these new products? And I love how pharmacists are incorporated in this new initiative that is going around to reduce the deaths due to opioid overdose, intentional or recreational use of opioids. And what's new and upcoming to and curtail or curtail this epidemic is different pharmacists association along with the state legislators are coming up with new laws 
or regulations to allow pharmacists to either dispense the naloxone or actually administer in some states even the naloxone to the patient under a standing order. Um, now, the definition of standing order versus collaborative agreement is different per state to state, but that's actually been the new updates across the country in itself. Yeah, and this was especially new as recently as uh, summer of 2015. This was something that was passed in Illinois. So it has actually amended the Pharmacy Practice Act of Illinois to say that, hey, as long as there is a standard procedure or protocol in place, a pharmacist may make the decision to look at an individual, assess them as they come through the pharmacy, and determine whether or not there is that risk of overdose, regardless of whether it's from prescription or illicit drug use, and they say, I think there's a risk here. I'm going to give you the kit or, or the device now, and I'm going to do the counseling on it, as well as not just how to use it, but the signs and symptoms of overdose and all, all those pieces of it. And that was something, again, that was the law was officially passed in September of, of 2015, and uh, Illinois joined a number of other states who are in the process and others that are continuing on it. So just so I understand this, what you're saying is that depending on the state, if there is a standing order or a collaborative practice agreement, the pharmacist can dispense a naloxone device or kit without having a prescription for that particular patient. Absolutely, and that is correct. And some of the states also have like a blank standing order ready to go. So if you are collaborating with Dr. X in the community who's ready to sign that standing order, under that doctor's authority, you're allowed to dispense um, naloxone kits to the patients. And I know that we're not talking so much about administration on behalf of the pharmacist administering it. I know that you said that sometimes that is happening, but this almost is analogous to some of the vaccination efforts in terms of you don't have to have a prescription to give the influenza vaccine, for example. Um, I assume that's more on the order of a standing order? That is correct. Yeah, so what they've done is, again, this establish it because, again, this is a this is a new step to really get this medication in the hands of a lot of individuals, but to make sure that it is standardized, there's, there's a training program. And so it stayed in there that it specifically says a pharmacist shall complete a, a training program that's been approved by the Department of Health and Human Services that goes through how, how to do it. And it's a joint venture between the Illinois Department of Public Health and Department of Human Services and Professional Financial Resources. And they can give it to not just, and the, the thing about it is it's not just being given to even to the individual who's at risk themselves, but it even lists concerned entities. So if you're a family member who's concerned, or a nurse, a first responder, or the individual, these are all, any one of these entities could be potentially receive the kit and the counseling on it. And it makes sense to be able to give these kits to the concerned family members per se, because, you know, if the patient, it's him or herself is overdosing, they're not going to be in any position to even administer this antidote. So counseling to the patient's caregiver or a family member who's concerned or a friend is actually what probably would be occurring in most instances. So again, I just want to get this straight here. If Dr. Schumann is my friend and he's a heroin abuser, I can walk into a pharmacy in the state of Illinois with no prescription and he doesn't have a prescription for his heroin and I can get a naloxone kit for him without a prescription from a healthcare provider. So in the act that's written for Illinois, it says you you don't have to have a patient's chart in front of you showing the opioid prescriptions filled or anything like that. In the pharmacist's good judgment, if somebody shows up at the desk and, and a concerned individual for a friend or a family member and there is a history of heroin use, then you can go ahead and uh, administer the uh, naloxone antidote. 
So to encourage the listeners to think about the dramatic impact this could potentially have, because typically someone who abuses either prescription or illicit drugs, they're not going to really want to go through the process of getting a naloxone device typically. But maybe a concerned family member or friend who's seen them overdose multiple times have to go to the ER. Now this offers that family member or friend the ability to provide this medication to their, their loved one or friend without you know having to go through the hassle, if you will, of having that person go to prescriber to get the prescription to have this medication. Yeah, and you know, just to play in devil's advocate too, a lot of pharmacies or pharmacy owners are also concerned because if their pharmacies are located in an area where there is high numbers of heroin abusers, then the word's going to get on the street that this pharmacy provides that and they're going to flock the pharmacy. So um, these laws are still in its infancy. We haven't really seen the total impact of how, you know, the practice has been with this new laws, the training and everything. But uh, some pharmacy owners are definitely concerned how they're going to or how, what kind of a reaction in community it's going to be and how, what, how it's going to impact their pharmacies and their workflow. And Dr. Patel, that's a great point. And, and in, in light of that, I believe, for example, the, C, the CE or the training that's required to be able to do this program, we'll, we'll get to some of that. Some of the things that are discussed are opioid overdose prevention itself, reducing the risk of a prescription overdose, how you would educate a patient on it, safe use of opioids for chronic pain, use of screening tools. So again, another thing, so for the pharmacist who is working to be able to detect whether or not their patients may be abusing or be dependent, how to manage difficult patients, for example, how to to manage diversion, education on the, the kit itself, protocols, as well as how to activate the emergency response system, some of those, those liabilities there, all of those are well delineated within within this, this protocol and the CE that's there to kind of help with that. So it, again, it is standardized and it may be allay some of those, those fears potentially that a, a pharmacist or pharmacy owner may have. Sure. And then, so you mentioned that the training program is rolled out by the Department of Human Health Services, but um, is there anybody particularly in Illinois, or if our listener wants to get a training, where would they go and enroll themselves to get the training? Well, the first and the main one out there is going to be through uh, Illinois Pharmacists Association, IPHA, and through their website, uh, Kelly Gable, Chris Hernan, Jessica Hur, Garth Reynolds, a few of the individuals who have been involved and had, had also done the CEs that, that were there last year. Those individuals have made this, 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 uh, webinar available for CE on the website. And if you complete this program, there's a nominal fee attached to it, but if you complete the program, again, you can have that certification to be allowed to do this in your pharmacy. So Dr. Sherman, once you complete the CE, help me understand kind of the A to Z uh, the nuts and bolts of if you're a pharmacist, you've done the CE, what does it look like to actually dispense one of these kits or injectable agents? Again, the first thing to do is going to be identifying the individual who would benefit from the receipt of the medication. Again, you have someone who is potentially is dependent, so you, based upon whether it's prescription fills, whether it's based upon you know signs and symptoms, if it's in more of a clinical setting. Or again, knowledge of or reports from family members, for example. If you said, all right, based upon what I see or have heard, I think this individual is at risk. Then you, you determine, okay, we need to move forward with the kit. First thing to do is you talk about signs and symptoms of overdose. So again, looking at, at breathing, looking at the, the pupil dilation, looking at, you know, this, the skin itself, looking for some of the, the response 
So if you were to walk into a room and somebody's not arousable, even with a, a little, whether it's a sternal rub or a rubbing of the chest or be loud or, or being gently um, shaking, again, shaking the shoulder, saying something like, if you don't move, I'm going to call the police, something like that to get their attention and, and make sure that this individual is not just asleep or passed out. But once you've determined that, you start the rescue breathing, and then depending upon the number of individuals there, also the activation of the emergency response system. And so those are important steps too, because this individual who you know needs to be make sure again at first do no harm. So also need to be while we're still giving the naloxone kit, we want to make sure we're using it for the right type of emergency. So just to be clear, what you're saying is that you're providing counseling to the person receiving the naloxone what to do in the event of an emergency. You're not doing it per se. You're educating the person picking up the the prescription product, what to do in, in the event that it needs to be used. Correct. And this is standard, again, per the state of Illinois, as well as this is when we do it within our my VA setting. There's been a number of kits that we have dispensed. And again, always pursuant to having this counseling for the individual, or ideally sitting down right with them, walking through it, and then kind of going next into the, the show and tell section. So again, once we know that we've been able to address it with an emergency response system, help is on the way, what do you do with that, that kit that you do have there? And there's a few different ones. We're really phasing out those intranasal atomizer kits as well as those intramuscular kits as well. Those that I know Dr. Patel, you and I have discussed last year, those are really being phased out for these pre-assembled devices. Those are pretty interesting to play around with, but I wasn't really sure if in a, in a, in a situation as emergent as, as it is that the administer of the naloxone would be able to properly use it for, for the patient or the victim. Um, so we've come up with some sophisticated kits as well, and it will be um, with the route of intramuscular injection. Right, so we have the uh, intramuscular auto-injector, or, or EBSIO. And this one comes in a nice little box with two devices per box. Each one is it's, it's all housed within the same device, a little, almost looks like a deck of cards. And then there's also, within the box, again, two of these devices, as well as it comes with a trainer. And the trainer there is black and white with a little red cap on. You pull it off. It talks you through how to give it. And you simply pull off the, the guard, place it against the side of the, the, th the outer thigh, hold down for a number of seconds, and then you actually hear a, a clicking sound, and it'll tell you the injection is completed. And then and so we have the practice device as well as two of the kits. And the important thing is you go ahead and give the dose. By, again, after removing the guard, placing it against the, the thigh, you can go through clothing if needed, but if you, re you really want to make it less difficult, if you can remove the, the clothing, if at all possible, on the side of the leg. But again, in an emergency, don't need to, but you get once you give it, the important thing is that you're also doing monitoring because a number of opioids, for example, we think of methadone as one that has very, very, very long half-life, up to a number of days, and if that's the case, the naloxone will get out of the system well before the methadone does. And then that individual, you may think, okay, well, I've done my, my community service, time to move on from here. The individual may end up right back in the same spot they're in. So that's where continuing monitoring and then also go right back into rescue breathing until help arrives. What kind of dose are we giving with the FZO kit? So with the FZO kit, we're giving a 0.4 milligram dose. And that's the same dose as was in the previous when, when they were pre-assembled. So it's interesting that you said that you actually have two items per kit. Do you really need that second one, or kind of what, what is the thought process with that? A couple things. Again, one, it's, you know, if it need did arise again so that you're not out of luck, but also the idea that you may need a second device for that, for that same incident. Like, owing to the half-life of a number of these medications, 
And we think of methadone as an example, especially if you don't know licit or illicit, you don't know what particular it is. Is there something else laced in with the heroin that could have a totally different half-life of it? So to be sure, you watch and you monitor that individual, again, looking for their breathing, looking at their, their pupils, looking for those same signs and, and symptoms of an uh, acute overdose. And then if you need to, generally within two to five minutes, you may be able to may repeat a dose as needed. And hopefully by the second dose, the help is on the way to further manage the patient's symptoms. And just to give context, sometimes in patients, especially overdose patients, if we have a significant amount of opioid on board, we may actually give the patient in the hospital setting a naloxone continuous infusion, where because the naloxone is only going to last, let's say, about an hour, um, we may actually give the patient a continuous infusion for, let's say, a day until whatever they took is out of their system. Correct. And then the newest device, the recently one that came out, is, is a new intranasal device. And this one, since it actually goes by a brand that may be familiar, Narcan. So Narcan was the original brand for the, the naloxone itself that was, uh, Dr. Kane used in, used in hospitals, I believe. And they've now rebranded this as intranasal kit, which comes in its own self-enclosed device. And this one, I believe it's, it's a, actually a 4 milligram device instead of the 0.4 milligrams due to some concern about bioavailability between intranasal and intramuscular. So using that, that same brand name of the original naloxone injection, um, it came out with the small device, and this one is much different, very tiny plastic device, about maybe two inches by an inch and a half, and it's shaped like the letter T. And so what you just simply do with it is peel back the packaging on it, and again, just to compare, this is uh, compared to the previous intranasal devices, which have been ones coming in these kits, where you take a, a vial and you add uh, an atomizer to it and essentially draw it out and spray it into the nostrils. And the concern with that was the number of steps it would take to put it together and given a crisis situation, not being able to do it appropriately, accidentally spraying it everywhere else but the, the nasal mucosa, for example. So with this one, you simply take out the, the packaging, peel the device out, hold it with your thumb on the bottom of your plunger and two fingers on the nozzle. Simply place it within the, within the nostril until your fingers touch the bottom of the patient's nose and just press the plunger firmly, and that's it. Hmm. Seems fairly straightforward. Is one preferred over the other, or does it not matter? So there, there are some concerns, and this has actually been one that, that's been a little bit of a, a point of discussion. And so for, uh, for the most part, all the devices should be considered available because there is a cost difference between them. So this one being newer, the, the cost may be a little bit more, but every one of them has its own pros and cons. So for example, there's a number of, of settings for, for some individuals that I've been made aware of who are unable to carry needles around. And so if that's the case, if your job or your workplace prevents you from having needles around, that's where a, a nasal kit would be appropriate. And certainly if we're thinking about, let's say, a heroin patient population, things like hep C and HIV are concerns. And if you're a friend or a family member of a patient like that, you would certainly be worried about a needle stick. So I can see from, you know, a third party point of view, having a needleless system might seem like an advantageous thing if you're working with a high risk group that could potentially transmit, you know, an infectious disease to you. Correct. Now, to be clear, the Ezio kit, the way the needle is within there, it is essentially the needle is encased in the device until it's clipped. So there is no active needle that would stick out. But yes, if you are very, very, very concerned about even the mere fact that you would inject it at that moment, if you're say, what if the device malfunctioned? If that's the concern, yes, the way to completely avoid any kind of blood would, would be to use this kit. Now, the one, the one interesting point of it would be that when they originally did the studies looking at 
uh, they looked at bioavailability studies comparing this to intra-intramuscular um, injection. So what they found is that this four milligram dose was way, way, way above the bioavailability of what they needed. So they thought that would be good enough, not too much, so that we're not concerned about you know maybe causing really, really, really bad withdrawal. But again, it's enough to quantitatively to to still have the same effect on reversing some of those those symptoms. What they did find, though, is that when they did it, they were either using mannequins or healthy individuals who were asked to lie very still, stop, um, hold their breath as much as they could, and so it was kind of one of those idealized environments. There's some concern that if an individual was not laying exactly still, was moving around a little bit, if there was nasal congestion, if there was maybe some damage to the nasal mucosa, or a big, big concern is with a comorbid drug, something like cocaine, for example, that, that would alter the permeability of the vasculature within the nose. So what you're saying is that if you want reliable bioavailability, the Evzio kit is going to be more reliable, but the Narcan intranasal spray may be potentially, if a, a patient was concerned about this needle, even though it's self-contained in the device, that maybe they might prefer the nasal version instead. Yes, in, in, a, in a nutshell, again, if you're, you know, if, if you as an individual, if the, the concern is whether or not the individual would hesitate to use it, that's where the, the nasal kit may be um, preferred. But again, if you wanted to be absolutely sure and say that the standard dose is a dose is a dose, I think then personally I would consider the, the FCO kit to be the way to go. So let's say that you're working in a pharmacy and a patient or uh, a concerned individual meets the criteria and you dispense either Avzio or Narcan. On the pharmacy side, are there any other steps that have to happen in terms of, given that this is not a prescription that you're, you're being provided to, like how do you log that you've provided this and things like that? So they have to maintain a log of how many kits have been dispensed and these are to be kept along with the controlled substance logs. So eventually um, when the inventory is being done uh, in terms of controlled substances and it will be evident to how many dispensed have happened in terms of naloxone dispenses. And also another, like you already mentioned, Dr. Schumann, another duty of a pharmacist would be to encourage the patients to um, communicate with their doctor. Um, you know, if these are like, this is a fourth or fifth, you know, dispense to the same patient that you know of, um, then definitely encourage them to talk to the PCP. I think the idea should be also to equip them with any community-based rehab programs, kind of information that we can provide as pharmacists, and obviously, you know, availability of the medication and proper use would also should be documented. Right. It's, again, this is this is a piece. Uh, this is not the whole stopgap here. This is a piece of the the healthcare system to help. So in that, you know, there's a time for education about and counseling and behavioral help and ways to prevent future outbreak. But the first thing to do is, you know, this individual to literally save their life in that moment, and then make sure that there's a policy in place so that it's not like, okay, well, you know, we were fortunate here and move on with their lives. But to continue to say, all right. Now that this has occurred, let's look at what happened. Let's look at what led up to it. And as a system, as a family, however however you want to think about it, let's look at, at mitigating it in the future. I think I can see this being very smoothly, um, this interaction being really smoothly. If you're dispensing to a patient who's filling uh, high doses of opioid prescriptions at your pharmacy because you're going to talk about the opioids and what it can do, and then you're going to talk about the naloxone and how it plays along. But I think the circumstances will be different if somebody off the street just came and asked for the naloxone. And that interaction in itself will be completely different um, experience altogether. 
you know, not everyone who listens to the podcast is in Illinois. We said that these are state-specific laws as opposed to a federal law. Uh, Dr. Patel, I know that you practice in Wisconsin. Does Wisconsin have a law, and does it differ from what we've talked about for Illinois law? Actually, I'm very happy to report that Wisconsin passed a standing order of the same sort like the Illinois does on August 26, 2016 at our very own Pharmacist Society of Wisconsin meeting. Governor Walker came and talked at about 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the order was passed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So this shows the real impact of, you know, working with their legislators to promote good health among the community. And basically, the standing order is the same, that, you know, you can, under a licensed physician, PA, or advanced nurse practitioner provider, you can issue a prescription if there is a standing order. There is a blank standing order available, too, so they can go ahead and sign it with that advanced practitioner. And uh, their requirement currently states that one hour of training should be done with the Department of Health. Uh, services of Wisconsin or Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin. So because this was passed just a couple of weeks ago, I anticipate that PSW will come up with the same training program like the IPHA or Illinois Pharmacists Association in Illinois has come up with. And the one at this moment, one uh, quick counseling point to add that I that I neglected to mention before is the idea about you know we talk about well as with anything what are what is the risk benefit and as far as side effects go again fairly self-explanatory you are reversing an opioid so the main things you would look for would be fever hypertension tachycardia agitation on the part of the individual restlessness nausea vomiting diarrhea. So potentially sneezing, yawning, cramping that would occur. And again, a lot of it, it's, it's hard to say how much of it would occur. It's going to be dependent upon how much of the opioids that person was using, how long they've been using it for. Is this acute? Is this an acute on top of the chronic lifestyle of it? Beyond that, it's very, very, very rare to have any sort of other side effects. And I'll tell you from personal experience and seeing patients who receive naloxone, a lot of times what you'll see is um, the goosebumps, the piloerection, uh, then you'll see yawning, you can see lacrimation of their eyes, and then um, they start feeling really bad. So they feel like their whole body hurts, they feel nauseous, oftentimes they'll vomit. So this is not a pleasant feeling that a patient has, and clearly if they're you know, abusing an illicit drug like heroin, they're not going to be very happy that they received it, although it was hopefully a life-saving treatment for that patient. So. In the heat of the moment, they may not realize it, that their life was saved, but there's definitely a side effect profile that has to be appreciated, but clearly that dramatically outweighs the, uh, the benefit of saving someone's life if they stop breathing because they received an opioid overdose. And that's, again, where it's, you know, it's not just upon that individual, but by all the counseling on why, you know, why did you give me this? What's going to happen next? And that's where it's the clarity of continuing to engage with the healthcare system and behavioral health system through further counsel moving forward on this be very interesting to see if a, a patient who was revived using naloxone would then be suing the person or suing the pharmacist or a healthcare provider who provided the medication. But I suppose that this law also um, covers the practitioner under the Good Samaritan law. So that should not be the case. So if there is ever a fear um, against dispensing naloxone kits because of such um, issues, um, the listeners should be aware that um, we are covered under the Good Samaritan law. That's that's correct, Dr. Patel. That's actually a really good point. Yes, it, it was very clear that this is still part of that, that same coverage that's provided to a responder in any other situation. 
And, you know, from a research perspective, one thing that makes us right for research is that we do have state-by-state initiatives that either allow this or don't allow this. And it'll be really interesting, given the logs that we now have of who's picking up Avzio or Narcan, in terms of do we actually see from an epidemiologic standpoint, do we see fewer opioid-related deaths in areas that do have this law or in areas where based on the log, we know that they've picked up a lot of Narcan and Evzio. So clearly, like, intuitively, you would assume that giving this out to a bunch of people will help reduce opioid-related deaths, but there's certainly another camp of people who say, well, if you give them the safety net, they're more likely to abuse opioids or encourage their use and things like that. We don't know the answer yet, but let's say five years, hopefully we'll have sufficient data to compare Illinois versus Nebraska or whatever state you want to pick that um, either does or doesn't have the law to see how do opioid related deaths change over time given that we have you know the availability of these products. It's a great point, uh, Dr. Keynes. Thus far, especially from what I'm aware, most of the data is just numerically looking at the number of deaths that were prevented as as use of these kits. And states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, who have been doing this for a number of years, especially have been reporting it more and more for a while. But as we continue to go on, again, looking at those those regions or counties where kits are and trying to correlate them with decreases in the number of, of heroin or opioid-related deaths, and that certainly is going to be a priority and something that I think we're even currently working working on within, within Lake County here. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something immediately um, or immediate issue that we're working on to prevent the deaths. But I think our ultimate goal as a healthcare community would be to make sure that these folks find right help, aka we have programs within the community and they're successful in perhaps quitting their abuse, uh, abusing agent. So just to kind of wrap a couple things up, one thing that I think is important is that any pharmacist that participates in this naloxone program has to be trained. Obviously, it is state-specific, depending on what state you're in and what the laws are, but generally, there's some kind of a training program to make sure that that pharmacist is competent in knowing about the dosage forms, how to counsel patients, recognize patients at risk, things like that. So not every pharmacist will be able, under the law, to provide this medication. And like Dr. Schumann mentioned, some of the East Coast states have been doing it for a while, but Illinois has been approved uh, in case of pharmacists dispensing naloxone kits. So there is a standing order approved uh, since 2015. Wisconsin was another state that just joined this August. And basically that standing order is in collaboration with either uh, a physician, a PA, or an advanced nurse practitioner where they sign the orders and under that standing order, pharmacists will be able to dispense the kits to either patients who hold opioid prescriptions or patients who are supposedly um, heroin abuser off the street. And I wanted to be clear about the availability of these uh, devices and kits we have thus far. Technically, there are four. We're currently phasing out the two of the kits, so there's a, an, a, a kit that must be assembled, and that would be the intramuscular kit and the intranasal kit that come generally in bags that will be given from a pharmacy, and the individual in the moment would put it together and, and use it as a single device. And then we have the most recently approved devices, both Evzio as the intramuscular auto-injector, a single enclosed device with a needle that retract, that's retracted until it needs to be used. And then we also have the intranasal kit or Narcan, or Narcan device, which is very small plastic shaped like the letter T and you would spray it into the nostrils. And both of those new devices come in in groupings of two. 
So there's trainer information available, and then there are two devices, one to be repeated after the initial dose if necessary. So with that, I think that wraps up Pharmacist to the Rescue, talking about naloxone and some of the new initiatives for pharmacists' role with naloxone. If you haven't done so already, give us a five-star review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at Helix Talk, or visit us on our website at helixtalk.com where you can see show notes and more information about the content of the episodes. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.